Welcome to the Grove Community Church Sermon Podcast. We're a faith community seeking to change lives, change our community, and change the world. And now to this week's message. We hope you enjoy it. So, six days from now, I'm going to be a father-in-law. Bennett's getting married. And we were going through some pictures of Bennett for rehearsal dinner. It's just saying that you have to do, and we're putting all these pictures together. Well, you know, I'm the guy that says, Laura, you decide on the pictures, and once you've decided on the pictures, I'll put together the thing. You just decide on the pictures, because that's the worst part, isn't it? It's like going through all of those pictures. Well, Laura loved it. Well, I think she did, because she spent hours doing it. I mean, hours going through these pictures, and she carefully choreographed which picture she wanted and where she wanted them to fall and and it was it was pretty amazing what she did really and so she spent hours and then she sent these pictures to me in a document and in five minutes i gave it back and said is this okay and she was like what like it was only like mine was supposed to be the easy part and i'm like no i got this so in five minutes i was done but here's one of the things as we were going through those pictures that really stood out to me. I was, I was really kind of blown away. And the more I thought about it, I thought, God, it fits right in with where we're going today in the sermon. In a number of the pictures, some of Bennett's groomsmen that he's known from high school came up in a picture. And there's a picture of them at school together. And there's a picture of them at the beach together. And there's a picture of them. There's all of these different, but they're there's this group of guys together. Now, what's amazing about this group of guys is that every single one of them is a different ethnicity. Every single one of them had a different language that was majority, that was spoken at their home for the majority. That's, that's not true. That's not true. A couple of them, it was all English, but a couple of them, it wasn't. Another thing that amazed me about this group of people is that they came from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different educational backgrounds, and none of that mattered. It was a group of friends, arms around each other, smiling, laughing, doing life together. And I thought, man, what a beautiful picture that is of unity, of oneness, of what it's really all about. And what made that group of friends special too was not only their diversity and their care for one another, they were just good friends, but they all loved Jesus. And they had that in common. Now, some of them experienced faith in a different way. Some of them had different backgrounds. One of them had a Catholic background. One of them had a Pentecostal background. One of them had a Presbyterian background. One of them had a Methodist background. One of them was the kid of a pastor. But they were all together. I think it's a beautiful picture of not only what Christ can do, but what Christ wants to do in our world. Today we're going to look at a passage that comes right after the passages we just looked at, and it's Acts 1. And we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 20. Now, we're just going to really be looking at 12 through 14, and then we're going to jump down and 
make a brief note about verse 20. But I'll, as you turn there, and you can turn in your Bibles or your smart device or on the screen, as you turn there to Acts 1, verse 12 and following, I want to give you a little bit of background of where we are. Last week, we looked at the ascension, which is the time when Jesus is carried up to heaven. Now, next week, this Sunday or next Sunday is the Sunday that the church would celebrate ascension. But next Sunday, I'm not going to be in town. So I wanted to jump the gun and do that last week. So we're going to handle this week uh, when I would normally handle the ascension. We're going we're going to... We're going to look at the next phase in this process. And this is just a little snippet, a sermon series that we're doing uh, before we launch into our summer. And it's looking at this process of Jesus' death, his resurrection, his ascension, and the coming of the Holy Spirit, which is Pentecost, will be the last Sunday of this month. And so in this in-between time, you have the apostles that were 12 that are now 11. And they're in between. They're in between Jesus' resurrection and ascension that we looked at last week and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, what we looked at last week, Jesus told them to do something. Do you remember what he said? Where did he tell them to go? Back to Jerusalem. And he said, wait, because what was coming? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. It will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So we looked at that last week. So he's already given them the instructions to go back to Jerusalem and to wait. We rush to the power part because you'll receive power. That, that part's the fun part. The part that's not so fun is the waiting, right? And what I've learned in my experience of faith is that there's a lot of waiting there's a lot of waiting between when I feel like God's calling me to do something and when everything aligns and I'm given the green light. I, I, there's a lot of waiting. There was a lot of waiting between Moses getting the call to go and set his people free and the actual setting them free. There was a lot of waiting of people in a desert wandering around <laughs> waiting for the Holy Land. There was a lot of waiting for the people of Israel for what was to come in the Messiah. It seems to me like when we choose to follow God, that it's not, a, it's not a very Western type of response. In the Western world, everything's immediate, right? I mean, it's crazy how fast we can get information. So if you are younger than me in this room, which is a lot of you guys, you have no clue how to look something up in the card catalog. And then go find the microfish. Exactly. And then scroll through the microfish machine. Oh, there it is. I went way too far. I got to find that article. Then to make a copy of that in a Xerox machine. That's how we used to get information. So if someone said, hey, uh, um, who, you know, I don't know, what's, what's something you would look up on? Hey, what's, what else is that actor played in? I don't know. Let me go to the card catalog and look it up and find the microfish of the IMBD and we're going to, whatever. There was no IMBD that you could look up and find every movie this person's ever been in. 
Now, if it was a Western, you could just go to my dad. Hey, dad, who was that guy in that Western that was about this? Oh, yeah, that was so-and-so and Josie Wells, and it was in 1970, whatever, whatever uh, produced by Paramount. I, that was my dad. He was the IMBD of the old school Western. But in our culture, we've become so used to immediacy that we don't get the weight. We don't get the hard work of finding the answer or waiting for an answer. We can just look it up on our iPhone. We have more computing power in our pockets than we did the first computers that helped land people on the moon. It's crazy. We have more, com we have more power in the computer in our pockets than I had in my first, like, six computers combined. It's insane, and everything is immediate now. And because of that, we lose this idea of weight. Now look, guys, there are Christians all around this world that understand weight in a way we never will. Because they're waiting. They're waiting for impression to end. They're waiting for freedom to worship. They're waiting for life to get better. They're waiting for rain so that they can actually have crops and eat this year. They're waiting for wars to cease. We don't get waiting like most of the world does. But in this passage, Jesus has told his disciples to go to Jerusalem and wait. Verse 12. Then they, they being the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Does anybody know what a Sabbath day's journey was? Yeah, it was, a, it was a, about a one kilometer. So this is outside the gates of Jerusalem, but not very far. You could walk this in a very short amount of time. In the time it takes me to walk around my neighborhood, you could walk this journey. And so they're just outside of the city of Jerusalem. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. Who's not on that list? Judas Iscariot. So now there's 11 of them. We don't have time to jump into the configuration of this because it's kind of interesting. This differs. This is the only time that they're named in this order, and it doesn't really matter. It doesn't give us enough meaning to really dive into it. But what we do need to understand is a couple of things. One, Judas is not here, so there's only 11 now. And the second thing you need to understand is that these guys are radically different. Matthew, Levi, what was he? Tax collector. He was a tax collector. He was wealthy. He was learned. He was political. He was a D.C. kind of guy. Peter, James, John, what were they? Fishermen. From a, different part of the, from a different part of the country. They were just everyday guys. They worked in the sun. They had muscles from pulling up heavy nets. They had tans from being out in the sun all the time. 
They were totally different than Levi who stood in the shade and just collected money. His gig was a lot easier than their gig. Simon was a zealot, which meant he had a different political and religious background than the others. A zealot was someone who was zealous, but they were zealous for revolution. They were a part, a segment of the Jewish faith that thought that it was a call to revolution and not just a spiritual revolution, but like a literal revolution. There are men from different backgrounds, different geographies, geographical backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different educational backgrounds, different, in a way, faith backgrounds. In other words, the disciples looked a lot like Bennett's picture on the beach with his friend group. The one thing they had in common was Jesus. And so they had, they had lost one, and now they were together, gathered together in the upper room, and they were waiting for what Jesus had promised them. Verse 14. Now, all of these, all of these being the eleven, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with, as if this group wasn't diverse enough, as if this wasn't a radical group of misfits already, it's about to get even more radical and even more diverse. They were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer together with the women. Now, I don't think we understand how radical this is. The fact that women were counted among disciples is pretty radical in and of itself. Beyond that, it's extremely radical that women were allowed to be in a closed group with men in prayer. They weren't part of their family. The fact that the women were invited into the upper room into this, into this close group of leaders who were about to launch a movement, this is radical stuff. Today, it's, it's kind of looked at like Christians, oh, they, they mistreat women. And, and granted, there are parts of Christianity that do. But understand, our history is a radical history for women. It's a, it's, it's, it's a history that empowers women to be all that God created them to be. It empowers women to do the work of God in the world. It empowers women to be in the upper room with the closest of Jesus' followers and his leaders. This is mind-blowing for a first century. It's mind-blowing for first century Judaism. This is radical. But there they are. And along with the women was Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now, what's interesting about the fact that it's his brothers is that earlier we, earlier we find that his brothers don't believe him. They're like, yeah, we grew up with this guy. We don't like him. He was mom's favorite. That's not really what they said. But for whatever reason, there was tension between Jesus's 
brothers and himself. And when I say brothers, I mean like his literal brothers. The brothers that, the, the, the boys that his mom had after he was born. So at some point, they didn't want anything to do with their brother. But post-resurrection, it's like the light comes on. And now they are in the middle of this group. The ones who Jesus didn't invite into the 12 are now part of this group of 11 and the women and his mother. Now, the other interesting thing here is that Mary is here at the birth of the church through the power of the Holy Spirit. What does that sound like? At the beginning of Luke's gospel, it was Mary in the power of the Holy Spirit that gave birth to the Messiah. And so here she is in this scene where the birth of the church is about to explode. She was there for the birth of the Messiah, and now she is the only other one from the birth of the Messiah that's there for the birth of the church. I think it's beautiful. But what I think in all of this that is most astounding is that they were with one accord... As they waited, they were with one accord. And that word for one accord in the original language means that they were unified in thought and action. That even though they were different, they were unified in thought and action. This word is actually used in not in Koine, not in the Greek in the in, in, in the New Testament, but in outside sources. Of the new t- uh, outside sources, it's used for revolution or it's used for military action. It's people who are rising up against injustice. But within Scripture, Luke loves to use this word, and really he's the only one that uses it. He uses this word to mean that the coming together of these different, diverse parts, and they're unified for the purpose of launching something powerful in the world. A revolution but a spiritual one. And so as they were gathered together, they were growing closer with one another as they prayed. So they were in one accord. The word where here is an ongoing past action. It's an action that was nonstop in the past. So they didn't just pray once, they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. So as they waited, they grew in unity and they prayed. Here's the thing, guys. How often have you prayed something and you're like, okay, God, when are you going to answer this? I mean, I do it all the time. Come on, God, when are you going to do it? What, what are you going to do? But we learn from this small passage, this kind of seemingly insignificant passage, that there's this thing of actively waiting. And actively waiting in this passage means that they are waiting, yes, but they are doing it in a way that they are growing closer to one another and that they are praying in preparation for what God's going to do. They're not just waiting and expecting that God do all the work. They're waiting, but they're waiting actively. They're actively praying. They're actively coming together in unity. And what we're about to see in verse 20 is that they're actively selecting the replacement 
for Judas. Verse 15 says, in those days, Peter stood among the brothers and said, hey guys, you know, all this has happened. We need to number someone else among us because we lost one. And verse 24, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate. And he's talking about Judas and let there be no one to dwell in it. And he quotes Psalm 108, let another take his office. So as they were waiting, they were growing in unity. As they were waiting, they were praying. And as they were waiting, they were setting up the structure needed to carry the mission forward. They were actively waiting on God. Now, we tend to get this wrong in one of two ways. As I mentioned earlier, we wait on God and wait on God and wait on God. We're like, God, you got to do this. What are you going to do? And we, and, and we just wait. And we get stuck in the waiting, but we're not really doing anything. Then there's the other extreme. And how many of you are, are more guilty of this? You don't have to raise your hand, but you know where I'm about to go with this. Well, if God's not going to answer, dead gum, and I'm going to do it myself. If God's not going to answer, uh, well, okay, God, thanks for not answering. This is where I'm going. I think this is what you should do, God, so this is what I'm doing. It's really, we see this in Scripture right? We see both extremes in scripture. Uh, look, I'm turning like 80 something years old now and I still don't have a kid. So I'm going to have a child with my concubine. Even though God promised that I was going to have a child with my wife, I'm going to kind of subvert this because I'm tired of waiting for God. I think in this passage, we see this beautiful picture of what God intended. That as we wait on him to move, we do so actively in unity with others. It means that we have to have others around us praying for us in community with us. We have to be unified. We actively seek and we actively wait by praying. It's continued prayer. And then we actively wait by doing whatever it is that we can do in preparation for what God's going to do. Does that make sense? I think this passage is a beautiful illustration of what it means to wait. It's a beautiful illustration of unity and diversity. And my question is, what would it look like for the church to do this? How would the world be different if we lived into this? How would the world be different? If we decided that we're going to band together and yeah, there's a lot of differences among us, but we're going to love each other anyway. What would the, what would the world look like if Christians decided that? If, if Christians decided, you know what, we're going to pray and pray and pray and we're going to wait on God to do something amazing and we're not going to give up on prayer. And what would the world look like if in our unity and in our prayer we also began to put into place the things that are just going to kind of in preparation for what God's going to do in the world. Actively waiting. In the picture of Bennett with Josh and Spence and, and Chance and and whoever else was in that picture that day. So they had their arms around each other, smiling at the camera. 
Little did they know, little did they know that on May 15th in Dothan, Alabama, they would be standing together as we launched one into a whole new world of life. I think that's a beautiful, in my mind, picture of what God's waiting to do with us. A group of unified people growing together, praying together, launching one another into new ways of living, into new life. We hope you found this week's message meaningful and impactful. And as always, don't just hear it, but put it into practice. Until next time, have a good one.